Hello, friends. This is Rabbi Leon Morris, the president of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. The podcast you're about to hear was recorded before the abrupt ending to our holiday season, uh, this past Shabbat and Simchat Torah. I know that wherever you are, your hearts are united in prayer and solidarity with Israel at this difficult moment. And so we want to dedicate this podcast and this learning to the healing of those who are injured, to the memory, the aliyah, neshama, to those who have died, and with hopes and prayers for the rescue of all those who are being held hostage. Yehi shalom b'chelech shalva ba'armenotayich. We pray in the words of Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms, that there should be peace within our walls and serenity within our fortresses. Hello, listeners. We wanted to provide a disclaimer about this particular podcast episode. As the Parsha this week is Parshat Noach, this episode touches on the themes of destruction and loss and addresses good and evil in the world, as well as how individuals and communities might react in times of crisis. We want to acknowledge that these themes may resonate differently in light of the current war. Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It's an exciting day today for two reasons. Number one, we have Nahama here with us. Nahama Barish is here, and this is your... I think it's my fifth podcast, Faith. Fifth podcast. I think you're deserving of a sweatshirt or a mug, or you should be getting some type of party swag. We're thrilled to have you. And as a special guest star, we are joined by Yoni hammer Kasoy. Hello, Yoni. Hello. You might recognize his last name. He happens to be married to the director of the Pardes Year Program, Mish Hammer Kasoy, who has also appeared on this podcast. But Yoni is a, is a poet. He translates poetry also, and he's an educator. And most exciting for us, he has come out with a book of poetry around the character of Noah. And it's called the Book of Noah. So we are going to do a combination of some of Nechama's Torah and some of Yoni's poetry and Torah. And we're going to have this wonderful experiment going on. So welcome, both of you. Thank you. Great to be back, Tzvi. Thank you. And it's great to be here. So tough Parsha in a lot of ways, right? A lot of destruction, a lot of sadness, maybe. Very heavy Parsha. So Nechama, how about you get us started here? What stood out for you that you would want to talk about? So what really stands out for me is Noah's silence. He's given a foreshadowing, more than a foreshadowing, really. God divulges to him his plan for destroying the earth and essentially leaving Noah alone as a survivor, Noah and his family. And that silence, why didn't Noah question God? Why didn't Noah challenge God? Destruction is going to overtake his friends, his family, greater family, 
the animals? What did they do wrong? And so Noah's silence, I think, is what speaks the loudest in this Parsha. And what I'd like to do is really read an excerpt from a book that I'm often reading at this time of year, a book by a teacher of mine, uh, Dr. Bryna Levy. And she wrote a beautiful book called Waiting for Rain. And the first chapter is about Noah. Noah missed his cue. He could have countered God, questioned his judgment, and thereby saved the world from perdition. Why didn't he do so? Maybe he simply did not believe the flood would really happen. Certainly, God would not destroy the entire world because of fools. Maybe Noah was humbled by the challenge. Who was he to object to a divine plan? He himself lacked merit. How could he petition for others? And so he said, nothing. And then she continues in the following paragraph where she imagines what Noah's feelings were as the flood begins. As the winds howled and sheets of rain began to fall, Noah entered the ark. And when God closed the door behind him, Noah turned his back on the world that once had been. Day after day, he heard the torrents of rain beating down on his wave-tossed shelter. The earth outside gradually submerged by a tempest with no foretellable end. As he beared through the tiny window, he he saw the sinister darkness of heaven, nothing more. He couldn't possibly fathom what was happening out there. In the storm that raged without, God was reversing the process of creation. The deluge reunited the celestial and terrestrial waters which had been divided in the beginning. The separation between dry land and the waters of the sea had disappeared. Men who had been given dominion over the animals were now together with them in the same boat. And I think about Noah in that terrible darkness, listening to the screams and the shrieks, at least initially, as everything living is being caught up in this torrential downpour. And that painful awareness, or again, the darkness, both metaphoric and physical, of listening to the world being destroyed and what that must have felt like for Noah. So if I understand you correctly, Noah's silence not only invites a sense of wonder, how is there no response throughout this whole episode? But it sounds like you're offering a certain type of critique here that he had an opportunity, according to this reading, to protest, to do something, to speak out on behalf, and he doesn't. And he doesn't, and then he pays the price in the sense that he's in the ark and he's listening to the world being destroyed. And and that's an enormous punishment, really. So, Yoni, if I understand correctly, in your book, Noah's silence also prompted you to think and reflect about what his words might have been, or you sought words for him. Yeah, I think going back many years, part of what drew me to write about Noah was that silence, trying to find his voice, trying to find what does Noah have to say to me living in the 21st century. And I found myself at some level, almost reaching out to Noah to hear what Noah might have wanted to say. And part of the start of this book was writing a series of letters, and some of them are still in this book. And I open with one of them where I'm writing to Noah. It's called Dear Noah. <laughs> and I'd like to read it. Dear Noah, the days stack like coins on a scale and summer tips toward another end. You feel it in the August heat. You hear it in the burr of cicadas and flap of sparrows snatching grapes from a stunted vine in the garden. I used to think people talk about weather because they're afraid of silence. But what did you say when you came in for dinner, sawdust on your shoulders and stuck in your beard? And your wife said, please, that's enough. Don't tell me your generation refused to see the towering anvil clouds even after it started raining. And I won't tell you it's too late for mine. I'm trying to find a voice that doesn't push away, 
that hews close to beauty, but my optimism has become like a last rhino in captivity. We have forests and towns that combust under a fist of sun. We have mosaics of dread laid one tessera by one. We have satellites winking far above, supercomputers predicting short-term doom and long-term destruction. I am calling out to you, Noah, because you saw everything wash away and begin again, because I want to know if there's more to do now than build a bigger boat and keep a neater zoom. Wow. So I sense that uh, in somewhat of a contrast to what Nahum was describing, you believe that Noah had optimism in some way, or at least a belief that things were going to continue even after this terrible divine punishment. And it sounds like you're reaching for his voice to tap into some of that optimism or faith in a future that looks so dark and bleak. Well, part of it, I think, is looking back towards the Torah for figures to try to understand what we're supposed to be doing now helps to take an optimistic view, then so be it. I think part of what's going on at the beginning of uh, the book of Genesis is this whole question of, do we take Noah's way or do we take Abraham's way? Maybe my next book will be about Abraham, but in the meantime, this is about Noah and trying to figure out Noah's relationship to the world around him and seeing where that can possibly take us today. But it also is striking in this poem, your sense that we are at a terrible place in human history, in terms of the voice that you found here, as you look around the world that you are part of. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> There's the temptation to say the world is going to end unless, and sound like that raving guy in the corner at a party. But I also think that we are in a situation today where there's many, many challenges in the world and we have to address them. And what I heard in the poem is that I focused on Noah's silence and that perhaps he could have argued with God. But in your poem, the idea that the people around him could have seen signs and commented, right? He's coming in every day with his beard filled with sawdust and his wife doesn't want to hear it anymore. Did no one notice the dark clouds? Did no one notice what was unfolding? And then at the end, you're basically asking the same question about our generation. The world won't come to an end in a single dramatic moment, but there's a process. And where are we who are living on the planet in watching this process unfold and being accountable? And then, you know, how did we not know, so to speak? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's not how did we not know. The question is how did we not translate that knowing into something beyond that? His silence then mirrors everybody else's willful ignorance, right? Yes. They're silent about what's going on around them. And his silence reflects that as well. It's very powerful. So you mentioned something there, which I think I want to pick up on, and that is this idea of comparing Noah to Avraham, right? The classical Mepharshim certainly engage in that, you know, walking with, walking in front of, and all the comparisons. And Nacham, I'm noticing, or I'm, I'm thinking, did that also catch your eye as you looked at this parsha? It did, because it really ties in with one of my favorite Midrashim. There's a Midrash in Breshit Rabbah, which talks about a parallel between a king and his sons. And the king tells his small child, walk with me. But his adult son, he says, walk before me. And this idea that Noah somehow had a moral or spiritual immaturity compared to Avram, who had maturity, the Midrash then continues this idea that 
the king sees his friend sinking in mud outside of the palace in a dark alley. And the king sees him and says, well, come walk with me. Let me pull you out and you can walk with me. And that clearly is Noah, that God notices Noah floundering in his generation, because really he doesn't want to sink into the dark mud of the Hamas, of the corruption of that generation. And so the king pulls him out and says, okay, you can be near me, you'll be safe. But in the second half, it's much more powerful because in Avram's case, the king is in the dark alley and the friend shines a light. And so this idea that God is illuminated through the light shown by the friend, meaning Avraham, is a much more powerful interaction between God and man, that Noah is vulnerable and God singles him out and holds him. But Avraham is not vulnerable. Avraham, if anything, illuminates God's presence and makes God's presence more brightly felt in the world. So the king, in many ways in the parable, needs the friend to shine the light so the king is more greatly illuminated. And I think that Midrash speaks a lot about spiritual maturity and independence and a core knowing of self that Avram has that Noah does not. You know, it also is, it could be just two different personalities. I'm trying to be a little kind to think, aren't there moments where we feel like we need an arc around us and we have to separate? The things out there feel so threatening and so difficult. The only way I can still be me is to protect myself and shut myself off. And of course, but the opposite, what about responsibility for others? What about trying to change the world and make the world better and not only looking at oneself? I just, I felt the moment of sympathy for Noah in a corrupt world, just trying to maintain his family as opposed to Avram trying to shine the light of morality and ethics and love of God for the whole world. Yoni, did this also, you know, give a little spark to your creative uh, fires? Well, I'm I'm always struck by the question of Noah in his generation and whether that's a positive comment or a negative comment or somewhere in between. And I, with you in that sense of trying to see Noah in a positive light, and I think that in some ways it's two different models, Noah as the, in some ways more of an individual who doesn't necessarily or can't necessarily affect the world around him, even though he maybe even tries, as opposed to Abraham, who is really got the talent and the knack for being able to do so. And that image of shining a light on God from Abraham is, is so striking. That was Abraham's gift in some ways of being able to show the world God's presence. I also wonder about what was it like for Noah to be there for 120 years between the time that he gets this command from God to build the ark to the time that it actually starts to rain, what was it like? And I'm always struck by that time. And, and in theory, he's supposed to be telling everybody, hey, guys, <laughs> you know, if not start building your ark, start changing your ways and maybe we'll be able to do something. And maybe he fails to do so, or maybe there's just no way to reach the people that's around him. Yeah, maybe he he's given up on them. You know, I will say that I think what motivates the Midrash what motivates the critique of Noah is he's described as Noah ish tzaddik tamim hayabidorotav, right? Noah is a man who is tzaddik, he is righteous, he is tamim, there's a wholeness to him, a purity, if you will, a completion about him in his righteousness. And at the end, he's going to end up naked and drunk in his tent completely disengaged from 
the reality of what he has experienced, which has been a terrible reality. And I think what commentaries struggle with is how do you go from being this ish tzaddik tamim, someone who has a relationship with God, who is privileged to experience the word of God, and then really completely stuck, I would say even more than stuck, in some sort of traumatic aftermath. And so I'm going to push back a little bit, Svi. He has opportunity, and the text even suggests he has ability. And the choices he makes, what might be a natural choice to protect his family, to protect his own, is just not good enough in a situation where the world is facing mass destruction. In other words, leaders are born because they recognize that their lives do not allow them to live the simple life of a man just caring for his family. And the contrast with Avraham, who embarks on a series of adventures, if you will, or challenges, uh, and really, in some cases, rises to the occasion well, in other occasions, misses the mark, but is always in some sort of movement towards some goal, is striking. Let's talk about that episode of the wine. It sounds like already for you, this is a downfall of Noah's as opposed to just simply an unhappy episode, or if even if you want to view it somehow as his failure, not only the failure of one of his children. So maybe tell us a little bit about why your take on that episode is so strong. So I'm going to go to the Abarbanel. There's really a great Abarbanel in which the Abarbanel notices that Noah is a man who follows instruction, and he really follows instructions to the T before the flood. And we're told several times that Noah does exactly as God commands. And God commands Noah to go into the ark with his sons and the wives separate, and also the animals, like the male animals and the female animals. You don't go in two by two. You go in male and female separate because the message is there's no procreation. There's no revival in the ark. The ark is about sitting tight until the destruction ends. But what God says to Noah when the flood has ended and the gate, you know, the doors to the ark are about to be opened is go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives and the animals as well, right? Male and female and essentially pru or vu go out and propagate. And for the first time, Noah deviates and he goes out of the ark the way he came into the ark with his sons, as opposed to with his wife and their wives. And so I think that's the first inclination that Abarbanel notes, that the animals go out and immediately begin procreating, right? They instinctively recognize their job is to rebuild the world through birth. And Noah refuses. He's unable right? He, ref he does not follow God's instruction. And then he ends up naked and drunk alone in his tent. And I think that really speaks to, I don't want to call it a weakness of character because he's gone through something unimaginable. But I really think that is a seminal moment where we recognize his limitation and that what he has experienced has scarred him and essentially caused such trauma that he is not going to be able to follow God's instructions forever after. And he's going to, as Martin Buber says, Noah stays put in nature. A man of the soil is rescued from the deluge. Abraham is the first to make his way into history as a proclaimer of God's dominion. And I really think that episode where he just very passively resists, he doesn't do it overtly. He doesn't challenge God. He doesn't say to God, no, I'm not birthing more children into this world you destroyed, he becomes drunk. It's a very passive response and a response in which he basically shows that he is weak. There's a weakness there or perhaps too much trauma. Well, there's a Yonah type quality there, right? That instead of doing what God wants him to do, he 
goes to sleep. In this case, he uses wine to help him sleep. That's very interesting. You're saying he's really escaping in his own way. He's no longer the good soldier. For whatever reason, he's withdrawn, and he's not the one then to begin rebuilding. First of all, I think to get to the core of the wine, we have to go back a second to that passivity and to what was going on maybe even before it started raining, because I do want to get to the wine. But even before that, I want to read a poem called Waiting for the Rain, which is interesting that it's following the same title of the book that you quoted before. Because already I think that passivity is one of these qualities that Noah that is perhaps part of his downfall, his ability to follow the command, but not to be able to see beyond that. So this is called Waiting for the Rain. This time Noah dreamed the flood came too soon. He was hunched over a quartered tree, adze in hand, chipping away another beam, when the first drop sizzled down, and he knew it would never stop. A goat wandered by wearing the head of a bear and cackled like his neighbors. He heard the rasp of his grandson as the waters thickened, leaving no place of purchase. He wanted the dream to end the way he wanted all waiting to end. Arid sky in the back of his throat, deepening doubt of a lifetime. The planks of his body sealed with dust. So I think even before, even in the run-up to the flood, there's this doubt. Noah's perhaps even racked with doubt. Like, what, what is he really doing? And perhaps unsure, even though he is following these commands from God. And then I think within that context, perhaps even, is the sense of his drinking. And I sort of, in my mind's eye, see Noah drinking even before the flood starts. You know, so I have to go back to the beginning to get to his drinking problem. Is that why he sees the goat with the head of the bear? I, I Well, it's a dream. <laughs> and nasty things sometimes do happen in a dream. Born out of that sense of 120 years of waiting and, God, when is this going to happen? Because God doesn't say it's going to happen in 120 years. He just says it's going to rain. And Imagine this whole lifetime wondering when it is going to start. But the thirst is there. And this is a poem that I want to read called Thirst. And I think that that thirst for escape from the responsibility at some level, but also the horrors of what it is that he sees um, and experiences is something that at some level really is there with him throughout, perhaps in the background of this story. And I'm, of course, always struck by later on, Noah plants a vineyard. Where did those vines come from? So clearly, he clearly brought them along, knowing that at some point he would want to plant them again. The grape seeds were in the carry-on, you're saying, as he's uh, he's heading out. I was hoping not to have to declare them at customs. I'm actually imagining Noah on the ark as all of this destruction has happened, and it's called thirst. It's always there waiting when the day's tasks are done. But tonight, Noah tapped the last cask of wine. And now he tosses in bed, heart thudding, adrift in his body, wondering how it will last. He'll need to stay busy longer until the murmur of lapping waves might slip him into sleep or let him yearn for the rub of dirt between his fingers while planting the vines he stowed away. Stars bloom far above the clouds. Manta rays haunt the phosphorescent depths. The ark groans around him. So he is suffering. He was a sufferer before and he's a sufferer afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I think, again, the text is silent about that experience on the ark. 
But I think that it's uh, clearly by what we see afterwards has been a trauma. Hard to blame him. It's difficult to know to sort of pick up and continue after this. You know, I just want to ask you a quick follow-up. Is it painful for you as a author or a writer, a poet, to want to tap into that sense of trauma so you can give it voice? It's painful, but I think it's also trying to breathe some life into Noah that can be approachable for people on reading this today. And in some ways, part of where this book grew out of was the experience of being in lockdown during COVID. And I think the sense of everyone sheltering in place and sheltering in their own little arcs. And I know, you know, thank God we've managed to, I don't want to say put that behind us, but the dynamics of that whole situation have changed. But in the midst and thick of the worst of the lockdowns, I know a lot of people were looking for ways to escape, drinking included. And I think tapping into some of that pain, tapping into some of that dynamic of facing the world, not wanting to face the world, is a part of what breathes life into poetry. So, Nahama, you shared with us earlier sort of these, I would say, maybe childlike or picture book ideas of what's happening during the arc and how you imagine a adult reader looking at that situation would experience it. I will say I was a children's librarian. I worked in a children's library when I was in high school. And one of my favorite books was about Noah, and it was called Two by Two. And there was this lovely story of how he went and fed all the animals. And there's this one scene like, Noah, did you forget the elephant, right? The elephant's anxious. And he says, no, of course I didn't forget. You get the biggest barrel of straw of all, right? And the kids loved it and I loved it and the pictures were great. And everyone loves the story of the two by two of the male and female kind of a husband and wife image. So I think that educationally, right, especially when we tell the story to children, the animals play a very, very beloved role. But the text doesn't really tell us much, although I did mention the animals who leave the ark and immediately start procreating. But I think that the question of, first of all, the rest of the world that's being wiped out and all of those animals outside of the ark. And another thing that strikes me is that on Rosh Hashanah, one of the things we remember is Noah and the animals, right? The salvation of the animals. So I think there's something about the animals in the ark that definitely catches our imagination. And on one hand, there's a childlike quality to the story. On the other hand, it's quite serious. What's happening in there? Meaning, how are the animals behaving? How are the people relating to the animals for that period of time where you're locked down with your animals? And you mentioned COVID. And sadly, many people abandoned their animals during COVID, right? There was a real problem with pets that were let go. And as a result, my daughter, for instance, ended up adopting a dog that had been abandoned during COVID. So it's interesting that relationship of human-animal relationship that is reflective of what Noah is tasked with doing in the ark. And yet there are questions about, well, what did that really look like? Actually, I'd plan to read one poem. But now that you talk about that, I'm thinking I want to read this other poem, which is really part of what was going on was really trying to imagine really what was it like there (laughs) when they were going on. And this poem that I want to read in some ways gets at that, but also another piece of silence in the story is the rest of Noah's family. And so maybe this is a good one to read as well, because it talks about Mrs. Noah and brings her into the picture a little bit. Maybe I'll read it without explaining too much reading. It's always better. It's called Mrs. Noah Counts the Flying Creatures. She hates it when he slaps at mosquitoes in bed. She tells him it's better to save his outrage for God, or that he'll go deaf beating up his ears, 
But only when she says it's ruining her sleep does he decide it might be wiser to stop and suffer quietly as they pilot paths of their breath in the dark. He thought it was such a great idea to build a vaulted chamber for the flying creatures. But what do you know? Only the mosquitoes stayed, while the rest swooped in and out of the ark. Now his latest vision of a fast and grotesque future, burning forests and talking screens. So many people, he cries, but she takes solace in the birds and bats and flies, and, yes, mosquitoes, too, that survived, all swarming in minor galaxies. I appreciate your remembering Mrs. Noah. <laughs> yes. And that she brings an air of optimism or gratitude or appreciation. She's sort of the more positive light in the way this story is being presented. Yeah. If the stories that we tell both about the past as well as the future are gloom and doom and nothing more, it obviously makes it a very gloomy and doomy past and future, but it also, I think at some level, makes it more difficult to work towards making a more optimistic future. You know, within that reading, I almost imagine her trying to encourage him to go out and make change and that he's resistant to it, but that she was a voice there maybe all along pushing him. And he, uh, for a lot of reasons, wasn't able to be pushed. Yeah. I'd like to read one more poem just to get a little bit more of that optimism. Optimism within the darkness. It's called Topside. And again, this was perhaps written one of the dark times when lockdown was, you know, you couldn't go more than 500 meters from your home. And somehow it all came together for me. And I wrote this poem called Topside. When it's not too stormy, Noah likes to go topside and shuffle along the slick planks, inspecting his kingdom of pewter sky and roiling sea. Anything's better than staying below with its stench and endless list of things to care about. In the beginning, there were bloated bodies, felled trees, shattered roofs, all the jetsam of what once was, although now he's more likely to see nothing, or at most a distant slap of a whale's fluke. Some days he wonders if he ever wants the rain to end, until he remembers the possibilities of a buzzing spring morning, sun painting his upturned face, whoosh of wing, on a wavering branch, a redbreast's four-note defiance. I found that very beautiful, and some of the images very, just I could see them, I could sense them. The rainbow, of course, in the Parsha is the optimistic note. The rainbow, which really is quite a beautiful reflection of light with its different prisms of color, is the promise that the world will not be destroyed. So even the Parsha of Noah which ends with so much destruction and tragedy, God brings the rainbow as a sign that things will continue, the natural world will continue, the human world will continue. Wow. So maybe my biggest takeaway is that this story is very complicated, and both of you have really surfaced this paradoxical nature of the story that he's described as a tzaddik, and yet his behavior, his silence, and his failure at the end invites a lot of criticism, and especially when he's compared to Avraham that there is this tension between optimism that the story raises about the enduring quality of humanity, but also a sense of the potential for terrible destruction that awaits and the passivity around us that may not stop it from happening. So there are all these competing feelings and associations listing the two of you that really emerge as I uh, think about this. And I think that 
Nobody listening will be able to read the story the exact same way after the two of you have presented such a compelling case for a lot of depth, certainly beyond what the children's book of Noah or even some of those Noah movies may have uh, presented to us in the past. You know, it's sad he was supposed to bring comfort and rest to the world. And so there's a certain level of sadness that always follows his name. On the other hand, humanity's future was made possible because of him. Yeah. So on that note, Nahama, thank you very much for the Torah that you shared. It was a pleasure. And Yoni, thank you very much. I'm going to use this word midrash that you shared. I think the poetry and language were beautiful, but I think it's also just such a wonderful example about the kind of conversation the creative mind can have with the text and emerge with something that's both really powerful in its own right, but also adds layer and more meanings to the story and the biblical text itself. So thank you very much. Thank you. Where can people purchase your book, The Book of Noah? Well, it's available on Amazon and um, all fine bookstores can order it from there too. Fantastic. So on that note, I want to thank all of you for listening. Join us. We're going to hear about Avram next week. So don't forget to join us for the next podcast of Lechla. Thank you both for coming. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.